Hello and welcome to An Engineer's Journey Through the Book of Mormon. We explore the Book of Mormon with the assumption that science worked the same then as it does now and that the characters are real people with the same types of feelings and tendencies as you and me today. The views and opinions expressed here are strictly those of the narrator and should not be considered official interpretations in any way. And now An Engineer's Journey Through the Book of Mormon. Welcome back. Today we will be covering Mosiah chapters 4, 5, and 6. Although today's video covers the last three chapters of King Benjamin's talk, we're going to visit a lot of other scriptures because the real topic is conversion. But first we have our trivia question from last time. Just prior to King Benjamin's sermon, he made his son Mosiah the new king. How old was Mosiah when he became king and explain how you know? Well, we find the answer to this in Mosiah chapter 6, verse 4. And Mosiah began to reign in his father's stead, and he began to reign in the 30th year of his age, making in the whole about 476 years from the time that Lehi left Jerusalem. So the answer to our question is, Mosiah was 30 years old when he became king. And now, on to the topic of conversion. In Mosiah chapters 2 and 3, King Benjamin gave what in my opinion, is one of the best sermons in the Book of Mormon. Chapter 4 begins with him looking around and seeing that his sermon had caused his people to all fall to the ground. And I've wondered why they all fell to the ground. Was it because of what King Benjamin said? If so, why do I not fall to the ground when I read the same words? It, it couldn't have been because of King Benjamin's delivery because many people in his audience received his words secondhand. And also, as we discussed in the video on Mosiah chapters 1 and 2, it's possible or even likely that some of his people were listening to his message through a translator. Have you ever heard someone saying that they were profoundly moved by what you thought was an ordinary or boring sacrament meeting? You both heard the same words in the same language. So why do people have such different reactions to the same message? In Mosiah chapter 1, verse 11, before this talk began, Benjamin described his people to Mosiah. He said, They have been a diligent people in keeping the commandments of the Lord. Then in Mosiah chapter 2, verse 9, Benjamin invited his people to prepare for his remarks, saying, Hearken unto me, and open your ears that you may hear, and your hearts that you may understand, and your minds that the mysteries of God may be unfolded to your view. It might be that our response to a message has everything to do with our preparation and willingness to listen. Anyway, if you've got thoughts on why they might have fallen, feel free to share them in the comments. So King Benjamin acknowledged that his people had fallen, and he suggested a reason for it. Here's verse 5. For behold, if the knowledge of the goodness of God at this time has awakened you to a sense of your nothingness and your worthless and fallen state... It's interesting that he uses the word awakened to a sense of their nothingness. That, that implies that their perception of being in a worthless and falling state is accurate. He also implied that realization of a worthless state is desirable. In Ether 12.27, the Lord describes how to attain the sense of nothingness. He says, And if men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. 
Alma 42 verse 24 taught the importance of having such a mindset when Alma says, none but the truly penitent are saved. And looking at it from, I guess, a slightly different angle, both 2 Nephi 28-24 and Amos 6-1 give warnings to people who are, quote, at ease in Zion. The scriptures have several other examples of righteous people being overcome with the Spirit and falling to the earth. For instance, Moses 1 describes the prophet Moses becoming aware of his nothingness and falling to the ground. Although in the case of Moses, he fell first and then realized his nothingness. Here's Moses chapter 1 verses 9 and 10. And the presence of God withdrew from Moses, that his glory was not upon Moses, and Moses was left unto himself. And as he was left unto himself, he fell unto the earth. And it came to pass that it was for the space of many hours before Moses did again receive his natural strength like unto man. And he said unto himself, Now for this cause I know that man is nothing, which thing I had never supposed. Ammon, who is one of the sons of King Mosiah, who will meet down the road a little bit, he said in Alma chapter 26 verse 12, Yea, I know that I am nothing. As to my strength, I am weak. And then in the next chapter, chapter 27, he was so overcome with joy that he fell to the earth. Here's verse 17. Now the joy of Ammon was so great even that he was full. Yea, he was swallowed up in the joy of his God, even to the exhausting of his strength, and he fell again to the earth. So those are several other scriptural examples of people recognizing their own nothingness and even falling to the earth from it. Benjamin explained that we should always actively strive to retain a sense of nothingness. In verse 11, he says, I would that ye should remember and always retain in remembrance the greatness of God and your own nothingness and his goodness and long-suffering towards you unworthy creatures. But even though God wants us to feel that we are fallen and coming up short, he does not want us to feel bad. On the contrary, let's look at verse 12. And behold, I say unto you that if ye do this, ye shall always rejoice and be filled with love of God and always retain a remission of your sins. And ye shall grow in the knowledge of the glory of him that created you, or in the knowledge of that which is just and true. So maybe a more accurate term for those feelings of inadequacy that we sometimes have might be humility. And this state of humility, or awareness of our shortcomings, King Benjamin said, allows us to rejoice, to retain a remission of our sins, and to increase our learning about God. Humility or a feeling of inadequacy, is a very different prescription for happiness than the one given by modern society. According to King Benjamin, the source of joy is not achievement, pride, or swagger, but humility. And the reward for retaining a sense of nothingness is a life of confidence and rejoicing. In Ether 12, Moroni teaches that weakness can make us humble and willing to tap into God's strength. Here's verse 27. And if men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. I give unto men weakness, that they may be humble. And my grace is sufficient for all men that humble themselves before me. For if they humble themselves before me and have faith in me, then will I make weak things become strong unto them. Ammon described his experience with this process in in Alma chapter 26. Returning to Alma 26.12, which we read previously, he said, Yea, I know that I am nothing, as to my strength I am weak. Therefore, I will not boast of myself, but I will boast of my God, for in his strength I can do all things. 
Yea, behold, many mighty miracles have we wrought in this land, for which we will praise his name forever. Benjamin told his people that if they retained their newfound attitude of humility, they would not feel inclined to injure or cheat one another. They would not neglect their parental responsibilities, and they would help those in need. On the topic of remaining humble, he specifically discussed helping beggars. He asked, should we be less generous to people whose bad decisions have resulted in poverty? And he said, no. If we only help people who have made good decisions, can we expect forgiveness, salvation, and even exaltation from a God that we repeatedly disobey? Here's verses 21 and 22. And now, if God who has created you, on whom ye are dependent for your lives, and for all that ye have and are, doth grant unto you whatsoever ye ask that is right, in faith believing that ye shall receive, O then how ye ought to impart of your substance that ye have one to another. And if ye judge the man who putteth up his petition to you for your substance that he perish not, and condemn him, how much more will be your condemnation for withholding your substance, which doth not belong to you, but to God, to whom also your life belongeth. And yet ye put up no petition, nor repent of the thing which thou hast done. Twice in chapter 4, King Benjamin talks about retaining a remission of our sins. I have always been surprised by how easy it is to receive a remission of our sins when we finally decide to get our life together. Think of the prodigal son in the Bible who got tired of eating scraps with the pigs, went home and found his father waiting for him with open arms. And after Laman and Lemuel tried to kill Nephi in 1 Nephi 7, they expressed regret, and Nephi immediately forgave them. Alma the Younger, who we'll talk much more about in a separate video, hadn't done anything to correct the destruction he had caused. He hadn't even gotten out of bed when he was fully forgiven and filled with rejoicing. Our Heavenly Father desperately wants to forgive us. But retaining a remission of sins is a little more challenging. Fortunately, Benjamin explained how to do it. Here's verse 26. And now, for the sake of these things which I have spoken unto you, that is, for the sake of retaining a remission of your sins from day to day, that ye may walk guiltless before God, I would that ye should impart of your substance to the poor. Every man according to that which he hath, such as feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting the sick and administering to their relief, both spiritually and temporally, according to their wants. Why would helping others, in particular those who do not deserve, air quote, our help, be such a potent recipe for retaining a remission of our sins? I'll be honest, I'm not entirely sure, but it might be because helping the less fortunate requires us to be humble. So from chapter 4, we learn of the importance of humility, or as King Benjamin phrased it, of having an awareness of our own nothingness before God. We then move into chapter 5 where we learn about how to make this change permanent. Long ago, when I was a missionary, we had these monthly zone conferences where we'd feel the spirit, we'd feel motivated, and a lot of us decided to try to be better missionaries. But sometimes that determination to be better didn't even survive the bus ride home. I can still remember all the plans and goals I made during the conference, but my motivation to do them had kind of fizzled. My experience has been that when we re-engage in our daily lives and our spiritual glow cools off a little bit, we return to what our default mode is. Can we avoid coming back to normal? 
Personally, I don't think we can. But can we change what our normal is? Well, that's what Mosiah chapter 5 is about. King Benjamin asked his people if they believed the words that he had spoken. Here's verse 2. And they all cried with one voice, saying, Yea, we believe all the words which thou hast spoken unto us, and also we know of their surety and truth because of the Spirit of the Lord omnipotent, which has wrought a mighty change in us, or in our hearts, that we have no more disposition to do evil, but to do good continually. Now, notice the phrasing of this verse. The people did not say we felt the Spirit and decided to change, but instead, the Spirit has wrought a mighty change in us. We find similar phrasing in Alma 5 when Alma the Younger reminded his people of their father's escape from King Noah and their subsequent conversion. Here's Alma 5, 7. Behold, he changed their hearts. Yea, he awakened them out of a deep sleep, and they awoke unto God. In both of those examples... The phrasing implies that the change was less something that the people did and more something that happened to them. A related phrase that we see several times in the scriptures is that the Savior takes away our sins or that his mission is to take away the sins of the world. We see examples of that in 1 Nephi 10.10, 2 Nephi 31.4, Alma 5.48, Alma 7.14, Alma 39.15, and probably several others. In my opinion... The Savior taking away our sins is different from him taking away our guilt. We find that phrase in Enos 1.6, my guilt was swept away. Or in taking away our stain, we find that in Alma 24.11. For it was all we could do to repent sufficiently before God that he would take away our stain. Here's what I mean. When we do something wrong, we want relief from the negative feelings that we have. We want to feel better. We know that Christ can forgive our sins through the atonement and we can be made clean, but what if he forgives the sinful act but our sinful tendency remains, which is what got us into trouble in the first place? Are we really any better off? Can the Savior, as the scriptures say, truly take away the sins of the world, not just remove the blemish from our record, but actually remove our sinful nature? Can he really, as he says in Alma 7.14, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sometimes when we feel like we've hit rock bottom, we want to become a completely different person without our negative tendencies. We want the Spirit to change us like it did King Benjamin's people, again quoting them, the Spirit of the Lord omnipotent has wrought a mighty change in us or in our hearts, that we have no more disposition to do evil but to do good continually. President Ezra Taft Benson said, the world would shape human behavior, but Christ can change human nature. A word for this type of transformative change might be conversion. As the Savior said to Peter shortly before his crucifixion in Luke twenty-two thirty-two, But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Conversion is more than simply having good intentions or desires. Peter already had good intentions. It is becoming a new person. As 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. So how do we make this conversion happen? Or phrased differently, how do we make Christ-like traits an integral part of our nature? Mormon asked a similar question in Moroni 7.20, where he asked, And now, my brethren, how is it possible that ye can lay hold upon every good thing? Throughout the Book of Mormon, we sometimes notice what people call the Nephite cycle. 
The cycle begins with the Nephites in distress, repenting so God will rescue them from whatever predicament they've gotten themselves into. He rescues them, and they enjoy peace and prosperity. But prosperity leads to complacency. They're not as careful. They drift from the gospel path, get back into trouble, and need to be rescued again. Although these people repent and change their behavior, their nature hasn't changed. And so this cycle of apathy and then repentance repeats and repeats. But there are some groups in the Book of Mormon that avoid this cycle. In the Book of Helaman, we'll meet some groups of Lamanites who became converted and never left the gospel path again. Samuel the Lamanite, who we will meet in the Book of Helaman, describes some of these people in Helaman 15, verses 7 and 8. And behold, ye do know of yourselves, for ye have witnessed it, that as many of them as are brought to a knowledge of the truth, and to know of the wickedness and abominable traditions of their fathers, and are led to believe the holy scriptures, yea, the prophecies of the holy prophets which are written, which leadeth them to faith on the Lord and unto repentance, which faith and repentance bringeth a change of heart unto them. Therefore, as many as have come to this, ye know of yourselves, are firm and steadfast in the faith and in the thing wherewith they have been made free. That's a dense couple of verses, so let's break it down a little bit. Verse 7 is especially helpful because it describes the Lamanites' conversion process. So let's peel it apart. They were brought to a knowledge of the truth. They were led to believe on the scriptures and the words of the prophets, which led them to faith and repentance. Faith and repentance brought about a change of heart. They were firm and steadfast in their faith and in the gospel, which, as Samuel phrases it, was the thing by which they have been made free. Now, a few things to notice here. First, those verses don't describe a single event. They describe a pattern. Second, although Samuel might have given us the prescription for a change of heart, he didn't give us the dosage. We'll come back to dosage in a minute. So, Doctrine and Covenants section 121 uses the formation of dew as a metaphor to show how conversion happens. When the conditions are right, dew just spontaneously appears. Here's verse 45. Let thy bowels also be full of charity towards all men into the household of faith, and let virtue garnish thy thoughts unceasingly. Then shall thy confidence wax strong in the presence of God, and the doctrine of the priesthood shall distill upon thy soul as the dews from heaven. So, as with the formation of dew, we may not have direct control over when a change of heart happens or when a persistent sin finally departs, but we can create the conditions that make such a conversion more likely. Returning to the prescription for conversion, in the example of the converted Lamanites, we can adjust the dosage of that prescription. We can create conditions such as immersing ourselves in the scriptures, attending church meetings, serving others, having charity, um, trying to improve ourselves that make an eventual conversion more likely. Alma 32 compares conversion to growing a tree. Just as you can't force a tree to grow, you can expect an eventual conversion to take root if you maintain the right conditions. Here's Alma 32, verses 41 and 42. But if ye will nourish the word, yea, nourish the word as it beginneth to grow, by your faith, with great diligence, and with patience, looking forward to the fruit thereof, it shall take root, and behold, it shall be a tree springing up unto everlasting life. 
And because of your diligence and your faith and your patience with the word in nourishing it, that it may take root in you, behold, by and by you shall pluck the fruit thereof. Create the conditions, be patient, and eventually it will take root in you. Our job is to practice being generous and charitable, as King Benjamin taught, and attempting, notice that I said attempting, to maintain virtuous thoughts. And just as do form silently and spontaneously when conditions are right, we may discover one day that we have become a new creature. For me, the evidence of conversion having taken place is when I realize that I'm embarrassed by the person who I used to be. Usually there's no big moment of conversion. Instead, continuous efforts to do my best and to improve have resulted in a slow transformation into becoming a different, hopefully better person. Returning to Mosiah 5, King Benjamin discussed the implications of the covenants which his people had just made. They would hereafter be called the sons and daughters of Christ because they had been spiritually born of him. He encouraged them to remain faithful to this covenant for the rest of their lives. He closed with this final appeal. Therefore, I would that you should be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in good works, that Christ, the Lord God omnipotent, may seal you his, that ye may be brought to heaven, that ye may have everlasting salvation and eternal life, through the wisdom and power and justice and mercy of him who created all things in heaven and earth, who is God above all. Amen. Now we move into Mosiah 6 and we're almost done. After finishing his address, Benjamin took the names of everyone who had entered into the new covenant. It was his whole kingdom. There was not one soul except it were little children who was unwilling or perhaps even eager to go on record as having made this covenant. Having done this, Benjamin consecrated his son Mosiah as king and he then lived for three more years and died. Mosiah was about 30, as we said above, when he began his reign. Like his father, he was an honest, hardworking, faithful king who farmed his own land to avoid being supported by taxes and being a burden to the people. And, quote, there was no contention among all his people for the space of three years. So to recap, we talked about conversion. We explored humility and discussed the importance of recognizing our own nothingness and how being humble allows us to tap into God's power. Then we discussed how it appears to ultimately be God that changes our hearts. We talked about how to create the conditions that allow this change or conversion to take root in us. Now we'll end with a trivia question, and this may be an easy one. A few decades before King Benjamin's sermon, King Benjamin's father, Mosiah, was commanded to flee with a group of Nephites from the Lamanites. They fled northward until they reached the land of Zarahemla. There they joined Zarahemla and his people, and Benjamin's father, Mosiah, became the king of the land. Here's the question. What was the name of the land that the Nephites left behind when they fled northward from the Lamanites? If you know the answer, leave it in the comments, and we will see you next time. 